This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. I'm recollecting the Dharma. This, that's the, the topic for this evening, so I'm going to share my, my understandings of that, how it seems to me. Um, the, first, the first question when I sat down to think about this is, well, what is the Dharma? We, we sort of think we sort of know. But I, I, uh, my sense is that the Dharma that comes to us through 2,500 years of time is sort of like uh, the end product of a 2,500-year game of telephone. Now it's, it's, and the Buddha anticipated this. You know, there's, a great little, there's a great little sutta where the Buddha talks, it's called the peg, and it, the Buddha talks about a drum called the summoner. And it was this drum that you could pound on, it could be heard for seven leagues, whatever. What's a league? Does anybody know? I ask, and nobody knows. Yeah, but it's a long way. It's one of those, you know, medieval lengths. But after a while, the drums started to shrink and crack, and they would take a little peg and hit it into the, into the crack to stop the vibration. And soon, well, maybe not right away, but soon, the drum was more pegs than drum. And the story was that you couldn't hear it in the, uh, in the next room. And the Buddha said, that's the way it's going to be with the Dharma. He said, over time... The words of the Tathagata, which are hard to understand and deep, will be replaced by those that are pretty, words of poets, people who, who speak uh, lovely words, people who are not practitioners, who are not disciples. And that's how it will become hard to hear. So we're, we're left with uh, a a lot of material, and the question is, how do we pick out the signal from the noise? There's, there are a couple things that I, that I want to say about recollection, recollecting the Dharma. If I ask you to recollect, or to remember, or imagine an equilateral triangle, okay, is that the same equilateral triangle that you remembered the last time you remembered an equilateral triangle? That would be the platonic vision. But neuroscience might say that what happened was that your brain conjured an image, a conscious image, out of implicit understandings in that, in that moment. There are many understandings that we have that are implicit. Riding a bicycle. If you tried to explain how to ride a bicycle, um, um, I'm not sure how you, would, how you would do it, but once you know how to ride, you know how to ride. You can't explain it to anybody, you just sort of do it. Uh, so recollecting how to ride a bicycle is done in the process of riding a bicycle. Recollecting the Dharma 
is a constructive process. So we're building the Dharma, uh, recreating it from our, the understandings that we've, we've uh, come to over time, and we articulate it in a particular way. And uh, so that's a constructive process. So how do we, how do we go forward? The Buddha gave us a couple of hints that, um, a couple of clues that I think are, are, are particularly um, pointed. In the Gautami Sutta, um, a nun comes to the Buddha and says, I want to go out and practice by myself. Can you tell me the Dharma in brief so that I, I can take it with me and, and practice? And the Buddha says, sure. And, he, and it's in the Book of Eights. So he's, he says, these are, the, these are the qualities of the Dharma that you can recognize. They are the teachings which lead to dispassion, not to passion. To being unfettered, not to being fettered. To shedding, not to accumulating. To modesty, not to self-aggrandizement. These things are not bright line items. These are internal, you know, inner recognitions. To contentment, not to discontent. To seclusion, not to entanglement. To aroused persistence, not to laziness. And to being unburdensome, not to being burdensome. These, these things are, you know, individually, they, they're an individual matter, personal matter, an intimate, phenomenological matter. Note that he doesn't say, become one with all things. You know, that joke about what, you know, make me one with everything. Although I actually, the Buddha joke that I like better is the one about why can't the Buddha vacuum in corners? Because he has no attachments. But, that's so back to uh, the Dharma. <laughs> so I, I like I like these elements because they are they are pointing in a subjective direction. The other the other hint that is really big is that he he uh, is the is the uh, teaching about non contention. Says. A bhikkhu whose mind is liberated sides with none and disputes with none. He employs the speech currently used in the world without adhering to it. And it's not just one place. He says, bhikkhus, I do not dispute with the world. Rather, it's the world that disputes with me. A proponent of the Dharma does not dispute with anyone in the world. What is he talking about? And then he runs into Dandapani in the forest, one of his cousins. His family was not an entirely, well, it might maybe even dysfunctional. I guess his cousin tried to kill him. It was kind of, anyway, one of his cousins who was not a fan approaches him in the, in the forest and says, what does the holy man teach? And he says, I proclaim a teaching in such a way that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas, in this generation with its recluses and brahmins, its princes, and its people. 
And yet we find ourselves taking sides all the time. The idea of a Dharma that doesn't take sides, a teaching that doesn't take sides, you know, the idea, if you make an assertion about the Dharma, then there's a possibility for someone to dispute it. The Buddha, this is, and, and of course we get locked into our own opinions, our own ideas about what the Dharma is, whatever, sort of like the moth and the flame. We just see the flame, in this case the, the idea we've got, and we're all in. And we don't see our own compulsion, our own attachment to it. The Buddha says, monks, well, this is a, a, a cute translation, don't wage wordy warfare. So, but and then he and then the the following text is sort of like he's mimicking people who are waging wordy warfare. So here's here it goes. You don't understand this dharma and, and discipline. I understand this dharma and discipline. How could you understand it? You've fallen into wrong practices. I have the right practice. You said afterwards what should have been said first, and you said first what you should have said afterwards. What I say is consistent. What you say is, is uh, refuted. You're talking rubbish. You are in the wrong. Get out of that if you can. You know, the Dharma asserts as a candy mint, asserts as a breath mint. And then the Buddha says, why should you not talk this way? He says, monks, such talk is not related to the goal. It's not fundamental to the holy life, does not conduce to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, tranquility, higher knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. When you have discussions, you should discuss suffering, the arising of suffering, its cessation, and the path that leads to cessation. Why is that? Because such talk is related to the goal. And I'm sure you many of you recognize that that's the, that's the formula that gets labeled as the Four Noble Truths. And in, a, in, a, in an interesting way, I mean, the Buddha said, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. The word is dukkha, which, and when it gets translated as suffering, it sort of always makes me think of, you know, real agony, somebody else's suffering. But dissatisfaction is also included, unsatisfactoriness teaches about unsatisfactoriness and the end of, of our dissatisfaction. And he articulated this insight. I think this is his, his, my understanding, his primary insight is into, into this, the nature of suffering and the end, or dissatisfaction and the end. And he articulated it in terms of this formula. The formula which is laid out in the, in the, in the first, uh, the so-called first sermon. And then for, well, you know, they're traditionally known as truths, but here the formula is presented without them being called truths. The Buddha could, could have said, when you talk, just talk about the four noble truths. But he, he articulated them individually and didn't call them the noble truths, which is actually how it happens in most places in the early texts. Stephen Batchelor currently thinks that um, truth, the, to call it truths, um, 
is a metaphysical claim, and he actually points out that each of these uh, elements, these four elements, I, I think of them as four teachings, he, he, they, they each have a task associated with them. So um, he calls them the four tasks. So four truths, four tasks, four teachings. Um, they have different shades of meaning in them. But this is how he articulated his insight. At the beginning of that first sermon, he says, you know, I've, I've found the middle path. And the middle path, he said, is the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of these teachings. So we'll get to that. But the middle path is also an implicit path. You know, it's not the yellow brick road where you find it and you follow the line to, you know, along the, the road. I, I just had an image of a yellow line on a hospital floor. <laughs> but, So the, the first, so I want to I go through these because I, I think these um, four elements are just particularly important. Um, and they are, when we articulate them, we are making it, we are recreating or recollecting as best I can uh, the Dharma that the Buddha taught. So the first of these teachings is known as, well, in the text it says the teaching of um, uh, suffering, the truth of suffering, Arya Satcha, the noble truth of suffering, or dissatisfaction. And it's often left at that, but the Buddha doesn't, it's not a definition that he provides, he just provides a list of experiences. So, what is, these, these are the dissatisfactions in life. Here's the list birth. You know, we all started with that big no. Aging, sickness, death. This is his list. Pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair. This come with the territory, he says. And then there's the 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 big ones, not getting what you want. Or the opposite, getting what you don't want. They're sort of the same. <laughs> and then losing what you cherish. These things are all, I mean, on everybody's dance card. I don't think anybody's missed out on any of them. These are the dissatisfactions of life. They're not satisfactory. They're one of the things, if you look at them, they're all unpleasant. There isn't a pleasant thing in the bunch. Nothing we'd order up for ourselves. No. So the first, tr- the first truth, the first teaching, the first task is to understand the unsatisfactoriness of life. Here they are. The second truth is really complex, and in some ways I think that his insight focused on on this. So the second truth is, well, the task is to be abandoned. What is to be abandoned, the concept is the arising of suffering, the origin of suffering, is tanha, 
is the word that he uses, and it's a, a subjective word. And I'm going to try to provide some objective correlates for it to make it easier to, to, uh, to get at. So tanha is our, well, the Buddha, let me describe it the way the Buddha did in three different, the three different kinds of tanha. It's often described, defined as craving, sometimes just glossed as desire, although in Pali there are, there are as many words that we translate as desire as there are words for snow for the Eskimos. So, there's, you know, so this is a particular kind of, of craving desire. Um, the literal translation is thirst, so it experiences, we experience it like thirst. We don't have any choice. When you're thirsty, right? You're thirsty. So the first, the first one is, um, well, the first one is, I'll just go through them his way, kama tanha, kama being sensual pleasure, sense pleasures. But the idea is that, that we want, it's, it's not the desire for a particular pleasant experience, it's the desire that our experience be pleasant. We don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, yesterday was too good, I got to wreck it today. And what was that crummy restaurant we went to? Let's do that again. And then, you know, we don't, we don't do that. We, it's, it just sounds crazy because we're built, we're built to want our experience pleasant. Comes with the package. Then there's bawatanha. This is generally described as desire to become. Really, I think it's, it's that, that we want to survive. Survival. We want to reproduce. We want to be, be something in the future. We have ambition. We want to leave a legacy. We want to live forever or die trying. And maybe if that's not going to work, you know, we can, we can imagine ways that we can pull that off, this living forever. You know? And in the service of survival and being more secure and stable, we pursue all kinds of ends that we think will help. And then and many, many um, different uh, motivations and tensions arise from this. And the third is vibhavatana. It's the desire, the craving, the need to make unpleasantness go away. We're built that way. It's, it's nothing we even do. Well, it happens. You know, neuroscience, I, I really, I've, I've been doing a lot of reading of these guys. Actually, it's because one of the guys in my, my group in Davis is a neuropsychiatrist at the med school, and um, I sort of have to take him into account because <laughs> he knows a lot. <laughs> um, but intentions arise in the neurology about 200 milliseconds, about a fifth of a second before they appear in conscious awareness. So they just happen. So this tanha happens, it unfolds, it arises. And this is our, um, I see this as our disposition in the world. This is what the package we come with. In terms of evolution, 
we have been, we have an organism that's cultured to survive. and to perform in certain ways. We want to survive. Pleasant experience is generally how we recognize what's good for us. Not always, but generally, we move towards the pleasant. And if you look at what we've done over the history of humans, we've increased our lifespan, we've made ourselves more comfortable, (laughs) we've obliterated things like, what came to my mind was dengue fever, but (laughs) we haven't gotten rid of dengue fever. But we've obliterated smallpox and, I mean, get rid of our threats. This has been, been the thrust of our presence biologically. And so this is, this is these, um, this tanha is what the Buddha recognized. This is the origin of our dissatisfaction. Suffering, dukkha is a composite experience of the elements, any of the elements in the first truth, any unpleasant experience, and the tanha within us that we come with. So when those meet, we get a particularly enhanced kind of unsatisfactoriness, which is dukkha. If you take away one side or the other, if you take away the unpleasant experience, ah, relief. That's why compassionate action often involves just removing the unpleasantness, the pain, the hunger, the need. The Buddha said the Dharma is the best teaching because it teaches about the abandonment of tanha. So if if it's possible to abandon tanha, that that would be the process for letting dukkha, this composite this dependently arisen phenomenon evaporate and you're left with unpleasantness simple unpleasantness I'll give you an example it's, and, and so what happens is we make it worse so a friend who just last, last Friday as she was getting ready to go home from work her boss stops by her desk and says first thing Monday we gotta talk and then he goes out So guess how she spent the weekend? Dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. And, it, you know, the, the one uh, encounter, the one experience, that brief experience, and the, the permutations in the mind, causing suffering, which only make things worse, spoils the weekend. You know? um, I remember when I was uh, 16 or 17, I had a car, it didn't work real well but it was my car. And when, one time I wanted it to start, and it was rrr, 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 and I was so mad, I smashed the dashboard, and I really dented the dashboard and really hurt my hand, and the car still didn't start. <laughs> <laughs> Making it worse. So that tanha business is, is where the trouble is located. And it's our disposition in the world. There's a proactive side and a reactive side. The proactive side, we come to the world with our evolutionary momentum. And what do we run into? Birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want. When unpleasantness arises, 
what happens is vibhavatana kicks in, the reactive side, and it enhances and really um, makes the suffering um, exquisite, as my friend found over the weekend. It turned out Monday it wasn't so bad, but the guy was in a grumpy mood, and I don't know. But we make it worse. The unpleasantness is already there. When tanha gets added into the mix, we, we make it worse. In a way, in terms of the neuroscience, we're not, we totally take out the issue of free will because we are built to want things pleasant. We seek out pleasant. The strategies we've been using are a little bit random. You know, that says, is it a, it's a Scottish thing? There's many a slip, twixt, cup, and lip. You know, with the best intentions, things go south. Um, with, the, with even crummy intentions, things don't always work out. So getting what we want is sort of not always what happens. What the Buddha found was instead of, that, that you can't guarantee getting what you want if you reach and grasp, but if you don't add, if you don't make it worse, if you don't add tanha into the mix, if you don't, if you don't make things worse, everything is better. And that's what we, we can have control over. And the third, and so the second teaching is to abandon what is really deep, cellularly deep. Each cell wants to survive. The Buddha talks about, you know, no longer having, you know, no, nothing else to be done in the world. He has no need for, continu- he had no need. The desire Tanha, he said, was cut off at the stump. The question for us is to just see whether that's possible. Unless one of you has done it already, in which case, I'd like to talk to you. <laughs> but it's our exploration. You know, the Buddha's saying abandon this, sort of like the cop says, just move right along. We don't see tanha directly, but we recognize its products, and it's described as greed, hatred, and delusion. So when we, can we recognize, can we recognize greed and hatred when they arise in ourselves? The Buddha was once asked how, he, he said the Dharma was visible here and now, you talk of the clearly visible dharma, sir. In what respect is it clearly visible? And he says, let me ask you a question. What do you think? When there's greed within you, do you know there's greed within me? And when there's no greed within you, do you know there's no greed within me? Yep. And how about hatred and delusion? Yep. In that way, the dharma is clearly visible. Well, it can be visible if you're looking in the right direction. The third of the teachings is that the abandonment of tanha is the, aban- is the ending of suffering. Because if you take the tanha out of the mix, you're left with unpleasantness. You don't get that, uh, that dukkha tang, that special, wonderful dukkha. So the third, the third teaching, and it's, it's interesting too, because the, the, um, 
The word naroda is usually translated as cessation, but it's a word that's used to describe the process of shoring up the rice paddies from leaking, to keep them from leaking, to stop leaking, to stop leaking tanha, or the asavas, which are often described as defilements or kalesas, but the literal translation is effluent. So we stop the leaking out into the world. And, and that's, that's the, uh, the cessation of, of suffering. And the path to the cessation is the Eightfold Path. And the path, in this sense, is, is the goal. Being able to live the Eightfold Path is the goal. That's the reward, the jackpot. The, eight, the Eightfold Path is to be cultivated, the Buddha said. It's the middle path. And so understanding the Eightfold Path, when we recollect the Dharma, when we reconstruct it in our mind, this is, this is his program. And so the elements of the path, these eight elements, they all function together. They're not separate. They actually can't be separated. In, in Davis, we think of them as, as like a basketball. So here's the Eightfold Basketball. It's a sphere. It's about 15 inches around. It's brown. It's got dimples on it. It's made of rubber. It's filled with compressed air. It weighs a couple pounds. It's got black stripes around it. Is that eight? It's close. That's the eightfold basketball. But it's all, it's, it's a, you can't play with just the brown. You know? And it's not a one-fold path either. So the Buddha's, the Buddha's program, the Buddha's teaching is this way of being. It's a way of living. Um, being able to live the path, being able to, we, we, he instructs us to cultivate it, to develop the ability to live it. And the three elements that are, are walking around stuff, right speech, right action, right livelihood, in my, in my view, is the fruit of the path. It's it's the prize to be able to live without suffering, speaking, acting, and living as the prize and the goal. But each of the elements on the path exist on the path only in the sense that they apply to the process of abandoning tanha. Because there are many, right view, the first one, right view, samaditi, right view. The word sama is, mm, is the word that describes each element on the path. So you got samaditi, right view, samasati, right mindfulness. People want to translate it with, as one word. So some people try skillful or mind, wise or right. But really it means the understanding that enables, or right view, the understanding that enables the abandonment of tanha. You can have views about all kinds of things. Apple, Android. It's not related to right view. Um, Dodgers, Giants. Trump? Nah. (laughs) 
Notice how we take sides. Take sides in that one? Not the Dharma, huh? But there it is. <laughs> so right understanding, samaditi, understanding. It's, it's an understanding. It's knowing about and knowing how. You know, it's, 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 it's that implicit understanding, knowing how to ride a bike, knowing how to live without suffering. You might not be able to articulate it. There's lots of kinds of knowing that we have muscle memory, that we don't, we know how to walk. And unless you have some neurological damage, it, it never is even problematic. We don't even think about it, but we know how to do it. So the idea is to make this understanding so that we recognize greed, hatred, delusion. delusion. We rec- how do you recognize delusion, for crying out loud? I remember somebody asked Ajahn Pasana once how he recognized it, and he said, well, you'll be suffering. And I thought, yeah, but how do you recognize suffering? You know, there was a book in the 60s, was it was Richard Farina, I think, been down so long, it looks like up to me. You know, it's like the sound of the refrigerator in the other room. When it goes off, you go, oh, that was on, or the air conditioner. You didn't even notice it was on. There's this, you know. I've, I've thought about some objective correlate for for suffering. And complaint seems a pretty good one, if you have a complaint of any kind, justified or not. You know, the world is the way it is, and our aversion to it is our aversion to it, and we suffer our aversion. Justified or not. So right understanding is the understanding that enables us to recognize Tanha and its products, as soon as we can, because they're already underway by the time we become aware of them. And it's the know-how to know how to do it. So, you know, we get the, Buddha, we get the pointers from the Buddha, and then our job is to, to learn how to do that. The Dhammapada, the Buddha says, calm in mind, speech, and action, and released through right understanding. An arhat such as this is fully at peace. Right understanding is the release. It's what we are to craft and cultivate. Because it's what will overcome the default intentions of tanha. Tanha is the default that comes with the package. Right intention which is the second one, it's the intention that enables the abandonment of tanha, the intention to act in ways that don't take tanha's bait. Classically, right intention is described as renunciation. It's a little bit of aversion and renunciation for me, but you know, the idea is not take the bait. And when you're not taking the bait, the Brahma-viharas can blossom. Right intention underlies speech, action, livelihood. And of course, speech, action, livelihood, it's sort of like standing, walking, seated, lying down. You know, it's all the time, really. I mean, if you, if you take it literally, standing, walking, seated, well, what if I'm bending over? Do I have to maintain this recollection when I'm bending over? Or leaning against the wall? I mean, it's all the time. Speech, action, livelihood in your life. 
when you're living, walking around. And that, that is the fruit. Those are, those are the way we live without suffering. The Buddha describes it as the bliss of blamelessness. And there are no direct rules that work. Precepts are guidelines. But in the end, it's like, you know how to get along, right? Say, get along with each other, get along. You may not be able to do it sometimes, but you know what you're talking about, and you sort of, you know... Right speech, right action, right livelihood. Living without suffering is sort of like getting along. It's it's an improvised kind of thing based on your ability to perceive the, the obstacles, the bait... is you know one of the one of the precepts and, and right speech is generally described don't speak falsely but you know sometimes speaking falsely is the kind thing to do the compassionate thing to do speaking the truth can be done out of malice you know it can be done to harm and what's important is the intention so there isn't a rule, really, which encompasses every possibility of human experience. In the end, we have to be able to, like, a, like riding a bike, be able to balance and go with the terrain. Right? Effort is... Well, it's the effort that it takes to overcome the default intentions. It's, it's classically described as cultivating the wholesome, sustaining the wholesome that's arisen, abandoning the whole unwholesome that's arisen, and keeping the unwholesome that hasn't arisen from arising. And that basically means don't fall for Tanha's bait. The wholesome and the skillful, it all, it all means what makes things worse. And, and the default is to crave what we want, our, our experience pleasant, more success and stability in the world, the things that we want in our being, in our bodies. And then samasamadhi and samasati, right mindfulness and right... Right. I mean, right effort is not just about, it's not the effort to lift the car like Superman. It's not, it's the effort to overcome tanha. These elements exist on the path as elements related to that. Samasati and samasamadhi, meditation. Achancha said, this pen, meditation, this side, concentration, this side, mindfulness. They go together. They work together. And this is the way we train our our ourselves to be able to recognize by paying attention. You know, the moth flies into the flame. It only sees the object of its desire. The flame is warm, it's bright, and it flies right into it. Everything else is dark. It doesn't even see what's on the other side, what's around. It just flies right in. The only thing it doesn't see is its own compulsion for bright, warm objects. So mindfulness gives us mindfulness and, and, and concentration, the stable uh, attention gives us the ability to see our own reactivity, to recognize, to see it, and then 
through our understanding to recognize it and through the know-how to abandon it. And acting out of, out of intentions that are not fed by greed, hatred, and delusion. So the Eightfold Path is the Buddha's, you know, the Dharma to recollect, as I understand it. And to understand it, understand it at an implicit level. You know, a felt level. It's ineffable. Yes, but so is the taste of a banana. You know? I mean, you, you know the taste of a banana, but if I tried to, if I asked you to describe it, good luck, right? Say it sort of tastes like chicken. <laughs> I don't know. So the Eightfold Path is the middle path. There's a, a model of learning that's, that is very helpful. It's a, a four-step model. And you go from um, ignorance through, from co- incompetence, unconscious incompetence, which means you don't know what you don't know. It's sort of the Donald Rumsfeld problem. And then there's the conscious incompetence problem that's when you realize that you need to know something (laughs) then there's conscious competence that's the practice, that's the drill by the numbers, you apply it and then there's unconscious competence so my my granddaughter's 15, I saw her last weekend, she said I drove, I drove I said yeah how did that go for you Oh, well, the steering was so big, and this pedals. And, you know, she had an idea. She didn't know what it was, unconscious incompetence. Then it became conscious incompetence. Oh, dear, <laughs> this is big. And now she's going to learn you know, how to... And eventually, she'll be able to do what I can do. I can drive from Davis to here and not notice Vacaville, Fremont. <laughs> you know... You've done that. Yeah. And it's the same with the Dharma. In the end, what we want, we practice, we want unconscious competence. It happens automatically. We recognize the bait as bait and say, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, got the coffee mug, not going again. The, the, um, there's a, a couplet in the Dhammapada that's used often to describe the teachings of the Buddha. And the way it's usually translated is abandon, avoid evil. And the, the, the word that's being translated is papa, and that means that which drags you into suffering. So, you know, it's a one-word translation. If you can think of a better one, you can publish a book. <laughs> Avoid evil, practice the good, and cultivate the mind. This is the teachings of the Buddhas. So I sort of, I spend um, 
I, bind, I spend a bunch of time in, in Folsom Prison in contexts contexts where I can't talk Buddha Dharma Sangha. So I've I've rendered this this into street language. And it's and the first one is don't make things worse. I'll get don't make things worse. Making things worse, don't add tana into the mix. Figure okay, don't add tanha into the mix. Ease suffering if you can. It's not always possible, but if you can. And craft an understanding, cultivate the mind so that your understanding enables you to do both. Craft an understanding that makes it possible to attenuate suffering and not make things worse. I guess the last, the last item I'll add is that going forth into homelessness is a metaphor, can be seen as a metaphor for going forth into the life of the Eightfold Path. It's going forth without, it's, it's an intuitive, experiential, moment-to-moment way of living. So recollecting the Dharma in this way, I find helpful. It points me in a direction for my practice. And so I think I'll take a few minutes and see if anybody has questions or thoughts or comments or complaints. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.